0: Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen. Starting power forward for the B. <laughs> 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 we have uh, Tom Johnson here. who's going to be our keynote speaker, and we are we are very pleased to have Tom here. Um, I've heard him speak at some at the summit, and I know several of our members here have heard him speak. I've listened to his podcasts. I've read his blog. I haven't been stalking him. But, <laughs> But he is definitely one of the. I mean, he's he in the STC. Anybody who's we're considered young, um, so he's <laughs> definitely one of the young faces. Even though he might not be that young, he's definitely one of the young up and coming guys in the STC. And it's a very big pleasure to have him here. Um, and um, we had a great dinner last night, in conversation, and uh, he's just a great person to talk to. If you if you get a chance to talk to him afterwards, I definitely recommend. Um, Stopping in the hall and, and having a few words with him. But uh, uh, Tom's ready to come up and, and do his
1: keynote. Uh. So, uh, this past week, or actually in the last couple of weeks, we had a special little conference at, at my work for these community developers people who from the community would come in. And actually, just volunteer their time to create applications. Um, and when when you work for a nonprofit organization, that kind of thing can happen. And as part of this conference, one of the tracks or one of the sessions was a technical writing deep dive session. And my colleague and I were asked to kind of lead this session. And we started to think a little bit more about who exactly would be attending the tech writing deep dive. These were all developers who were coming. And we thought, are technical writers going to show up out of nowhere and just uh, you know, be these professionals who had taken off a couple of days to come work on these projects? And The more we got to thinking about it, we started to realize that this, this tech writing track or this session was really reserved for all the developers who weren't really developers or people who couldn't code. Uh, if somebody couldn't program, couldn't design an interface, well, then let's stick them in the tech writing track because at least they can write. And as my colleague and I were, were talking about this, we were like, yeah, that's probably what this track is all about. You know, we're gonna get people who have never done tech writing before, and this is where they're gonna put them. And uh, as we started to talk about this, and we started laughing, because you, know, you can't just automatically do everything we do, right? Um, it, it belittles our profession. And, and at the same time we were laughing, we are also kind of turning red in the forehead because it's one of those maddening, frustrating things when people say, oh, anybody can write. You know, just a writer. Uh, everybody has that same basic skill set who who graduated from college. And um, I, I noticed, it, after this, the, the actual conference took place, it, it was true, about two thirds of the people who showed up had never done tech writing before. It was a real estate guy, he was like, ah, I've written tax stuff, I can do this. And um, it, it taught me, or it brought to my mind, the fact that because our reaction was so kind of severe towards this accusation that anybody could write this is really a sore point among technical writers this is really something that cuts us into the core and it makes us really angry and uh this part of what i'm talking about today is this this um journey beyond that because we all know that technical writers can do more than just write Uh, we are more than just writers and how exactly do we move From that position of of being looked at as just this peon technical writer who has a skill that everybody has, they're just too lazy to do, don't want to do it, to somebody who's more of a key player in a project, somebody who's on center stage, influencing things and moving and shaping how how a product rolls out. So I'm going to start with a little a little story about how I got into technical writing. I was a former teacher. I did some marketing copywriting and finally transitioned into technical writing for a better salary. And my first job was at a big financial company and I didn't really know much about tech writing. So I was kind of at the mercy of whatever people guided me towards and what they explained to me about my job. And I would attend these meetings for the projects I was to document. And these meetings were long and incredibly tedious Uh, i didn't understand what people were saying it was mostly the project managers talking with the database people talking with the testers and maybe at the end of the meeting they would take two minutes and say tom is there anything for documentation you know no i hadn't even written anything i'm just uh i'm here don't even pay attention to me uh you know sorry to bother you on your meeting and and so it was kind of like this for for a long time Um, I go to the meetings. I'd, I'd take notes, try to understand what was going on. And I'd come back to my cube and I'd start to document things. And one day a senior technical writer even, even told me, uh, I, I asked her, I said, who should I go to for questions about all this stuff? Um, and she said, well, there are business analysts you can go to, but they're, they're really busy, so you know, don't bother them very much. And I thought, wow, you know, if, if anything could reinforce the minimalization of my role even more, it was that. Where, like, I couldn't even go out to people because they were too busy. Uh, I didn't want to bother anybody. I even had a project where it was a, it was a small project, more of an update, but I wasn't in the project at all. I never met the, the project leader. Uh, business analyst gave me a 20-minute a, a demo and, and weeks later I had to produce the documentation. So it was an example where I was, where I was completely removed from this entire software creation process. and. You know, I think there's a lot of people, I have, I have a really controversial post on my site, it was a guest post by by somebody who had really become disgruntled in in the field. And uh, I'm going to share that in a minute, but, but the person talked about this gloomy road that, that people can paint. And, and if you keep going down that road, uh, eventually people do burn out. Um, at the time I was living in kind of a really bad neighborhood in Florida, it was a drug neighborhood. We thought, hey, it's going to turn around, it's one of these... Uh, I don't know, beautification areas, it didn't really happen, we had like this drug lord move next door, there was a shootout, you know, <laughs> bullets ricocheting into my daughter's room, we're like, we gotta get out of here, we got robbed. So I moved from Florida to a safer, cleaner place up in, in Utah and started working for a military, uh, bioche- like a biochemical military facility uh, where they do all kinds of experiments and things like that. You know, I had to get a super secret clearance. but. Uh, it was in the middle, of the middle of the desert, in case anything went wrong, nobody would be contaminated, and uh, <laughs> I worked in these 10 hour days in a windowless building, um, and it was kind of the same situation as before. The, the government workers, they really didn't interact with me at all. It was a, a hello the first day, met him in the hallway, and after that it was always just kind of a nod, and they were always too busy to, to really get involved. And, and the engineer who I was working with. He was a very talkative guy, but, you know, he never wanted to talk about documentation. It was always, he, he really hated the government people. So we'd go on these lunch rides and he'd just talk about how backstabbing and incompetent and territorial these people are, and I'd listen and so forth. And, um, you know, all this while I was like, uh, is, is this going to be it? Is this really what a tech writer does? So you're just kind of this person who's trying to scratch by, scrape by with some documentation. And you take notes at what other people are creating and so forth. And it's not. Um, so, but before I go on to the, to, the, to the movement beyond that, so I have this, this post I was telling you about with this person who, who described their, their bad experience in the field. And so people, the, the more interesting parts are actually the comments below the post. Here's a person who says, you know after 12 awful years of working at a company, I can concur with everything y- said in this article. It's a horrible, horrible profession. Employers expect you to know just as much as the engineers, but you get no time to finish your products. Uh, yours needs to be done tomorrow, whereas the engineers get years to plan and develop it. You're expected to know every graphics and online tool out there. You're paid half as much as the engineers and you have no hope of promotion. Oh yeah, and you're expendable when things get tight because you're just a writer. And she goes on to explain how she got into like a business program and learned that you have to sell a product in order to to do any or to be anybody. And her final advice is, don't go into tech writing, you'll be nothing but a writer. Been there, done that, never again. Uh, There's another comment that's kind of along the same lines. This person says, recently quit my job as a tech writer at a software company because I was worn down by the thankless and impossible job. Generally, as a writer, I was regarded as unimportant, a pain, or totally forgotten about until someone screamed at me that they needed a manual tomorrow. We were seldom told what was being designed or developed until the very last minute when it was assumed we could magically summon up the knowledge of an entire design development and team overnight <coughs> and produce a polished manual. And so, I think if I had continued kind of going in the same mindset, of, well, these people are too busy to bother. These, my role is to document, not to help create. My role is, is really on the side, as more of a bystander who's taking notes. I would have ended up like these people who have just a disgruntled, burned-out career, who are dissatisfied at the end. Well, I didn't much like the contract work. Um, I didn't like the idea that uh, the job could suddenly vanish one day in, in a very short notice. So. I switched jobs to another another environment. This was at the LDS Church, which has a huge IT department, um, about five or six hundred people, and it was an agile environment. And I met my my manager there, and I kind of got the new the rundown of the projects that I'd be working on for the next two years. And I thought, okay, this is going to be the same sort of thing. This is you know what I'd been trained a technical writer does, and and I'll just go ahead and start on the manual. Uh, and and a little while later. Uh, I said, you know, look, I, I really want to use this other help authoring tool. I'm tired of, uh, I'm tired of using what I have. And he looked at me and he said, so why don't you? And I said, well, you know, aren't there standards? Things like can install, can install. You know, at previous companies we had a really defined style guide. You, you had defined deliverables, what you could produce. Things had to look the same. You had a defined method. You couldn't just install what you wanted to install. But he said, no, you, you've got the software. If that's not the issue, go ahead. So I was, kind of like. Uh, kind of like a prisoner who'd been set free, and I saw this open land. And I was like, really? And I can just install it, and I can do it? And he said, yeah. And uh, so it was kind of this liberating environment where I had a little, a little more freedom. And one of the things I'd always wanted to produce when I was writing these help materials was, was videos. Because, not, not like a film or anything, but software screencasts. Because when I needed to learn software, that's how I learned it. I, I love to watch and see things. And, and it had always been something restricted. So um, oh, kind of skipped that one. I already explained it. <laughs> OK, so this, <coughs> this, this new, at this new role, I, uh, I, I had a copy of, of Captivate and later got Camtasia and so forth. And I didn't know much about doing videos. Um, Nobody had ever taught me about how to do an e-learning video. Um, And and we actually also had an AV department there that was really quite amazing. I didn't know much about it at the time, but apparently they had about a 50-year legacy. They they had more voiceover talents and pros at our disposal than we even had technical writers. Uh, They were just kind of a very robust department. And they typically did a lot of the, the audio-visual stuff. Right? But uh, I, I didn't know that much about it. And I set about starting to create these videos and, and stayed up almost all night trying to make these, these videos in time for the release. And as I, um, as I finished them and, and produced them, I was, I was really kind of excited. It was a new step that I had taken outside of this prescribed role that I thought I had to fill. And the feedback on these videos was pretty good. It was the only thing users ever really commented on. They would say, you know, hey, these videos are great. And one day, the project, the, the manager of the department even came to me and he said, Tom, uh, can you make some videos? And I thought, wait, didn't I just make the videos? And uh, it turns out these, these videos that I made were just caption based because I didn't really think I could use my own voice and so forth. So they're all captions. And, and he said, no, we want something with, with voice, you know, something a little more dynamic so i was like wow okay and i sat down and i said i i had some reservations about actually recording with my own voice uh, just because it's a professional work environment it's a place where you know these things were going to be distributed across departments and and different audiences and so forth but i sat down and I, i got a microphone figured all that out and i started recording these videos using my own voice and it was really liberating as well to think that Uh, Not only could I record them, I I could also record the scripts, I could produce them, I could publish them, and I noticed that I was a lot more efficient because I could do all the roles rather than having to coordinate it among different groups. And so this was another first step towards this idea where, hey, I can actually do this stuff. I don't have to rely on other people to to try to get this done. Um, Okay. I have a couple of quotes here. Um, Larry Coons was t- Larry Coons. Yeah, I don't really know where he's based, but he's he's a, a good guy, and he did some research on people who had stepped out of their traditional role, and he gathered these stories of technical writers who had started to do something more beyond just technical writing, and and here are a few stories because it kind of expresses the way I felt when I started to do something different. Now this is from uh, Diane Feldman. She says. Tech writers often complain that their jobs are made difficult by software interfaces that are poorly designed. They wish they could have done more input into the design process. Well, one year, I attended a session at the annual conference that focused on ways for tech writers to get involved in design. I included a description of this session in the trip report that I wrote up when I came back to the office. Trip reports were were posted to the internet where the engineering manager for a new product line happened to read it. The short, short version of the story is that this trip report led to the PUBS team being entirely responsible for organizing the interdisciplinary teams that would design the interfaces for the new product line. So here she saw an opportunity, uh, and you know through her, through her short exposure to it, she was suddenly put in charge of doing more of these interfaces. Here's another one. This is from a, a guy who has a programming hobby. He says, I like, to pro- I like programming as a hobby. Definitely not, definitely not a professional. My degree is in English. So I tend to apply it to documentation development whenever I can automate something. About 15 years ago, I wrote a program to pull the error messages out of the programming code, present an interface to the programmer so they could document the message, stored all the information in a database, then spit it out in a manual in FrameMaker by tagging the fields with MIF. About three years ago, I wrote a program in VBA to find the abbreviations linked them and so forth, and generated the other list. So he, he had this programming hobby. He started to apply it to his current role, and suddenly he's, doing, he's like a quasi-programmer in, in there. I have one more. This person uh, moves into um, more of a marketing role. She says, I was hired as a technical writer for a small software team. They had a team of programmers and support staff, but no marketing department. They hired a consultant for any marketing materials they couldn't handle on their own. Being someone who quickly gets bored with the same old routine, I kept my eyes open for an opportunity to spread my wings. My chance came prior to an annual software industry conference. I designed an auto-running PowerPoint presentation. Presentation was a hit. After a time, I became the primary source for marketing copy and was included in marketing strategy meetings. They found that my in-depth understanding of the software helped me write more convincingly than the consultant. So in each of these cases, these people begin to do something more. They step out of their traditional tech writing role. I had another experience that took me into another role. Uh, We rolled out this product, which I had created videos for. and knew it pretty well. We found that our service desk, they they had to support so many applications, they didn't know how to answer user questions at all. And we we had some high profile customers we wanted to please. the product manager said, "Look, Tom, we want you to answer some of their questions. We want you to be kind of the go-to support person for this application." And I thought, you know, the support is kind of demeaning. You know, it's usually a it's lower paid. They're usually in another department. I don't want to be this person answering phones or going over to people's workstations. But I said, well, you know, I'll do it because I was asked to do it. And uh, as I I had some training sessions with users, we had a big computer lab, and I would go in there and I'd say, look, this is the application, and here are some tasks, and I would begin to give training. And I soon found that interacting with users like that was incredibly helpful. Uh, I often gave them a list of tasks to do, rather than just explain the different screens and so forth, because people learn by doing, right? Well, as I watched them try to do these tasks, what it turned into was this massive usability lab where I could suddenly see all these problem points and pain points in the application that had been totally blind to me before and blind to the other team members. Uh, The more training I gave, the more I began to not see it so much as training, but an opportunity to kind of observe firsthand how users were using the application. And I took that knowledge back to the project meetings and the team. And as they were discussing prototypes for the next iteration of the release, I could suddenly raise my hand and say, users don't think like that. Or that term is really going to confuse them. Here's what I've been seeing. This is where users go. This is what they click. This is what it seems like to them. These are the questions they're having. And our interaction designer at that time, I mean, he was really pretty experienced, but he had not tapped into this user knowledge like I had, and I, I had tapped into it simply because I was working with these customers. I was helping them. I was teaching them. I was answering their questions. I was, I was playing this support role. Uh, really transformed how I thought I could participate on these project teams. You know, no longer did I have to be this silent guy who sits on the side taking notes. But since I had tapped into this design knowledge, I could then influence the design. And, and a lot of times. Uh, the project manager would would be arguing with the interaction designer about a screen, and they'd say, look, let's let Tom decide. And I was like, wow, okay, well, let's do it this way. And, of course, I was usually right about how it should go. And um, I found, uh, uh, later I attended a conference with uh, no- Nas Urbina, and he kind of explained that the role of social media has the same empowerment for technical writers as, as their... Um, interacting with customers through Twitter, Facebook, email, blogs, whatever, they're also the key holders on this pipeline of data. It says, uh, now the the technical communicator is, in essence, the key holder on a pipeline of customer data, which is essential to product development. So now instead of just giving the manual, which goes in the box, because they have to, now Techcom has a conversation going on with the client post-sale to see where their problems are, (laughs) see how their customer experience has been with the product over time, Because that conversation is intimate about the details of the customer experience with with the technology, that becomes very valuable data. And and I found that to be true. Other people, they they gathered the requirements and so forth, and they they knew about the software and they knew uh, the best way to do it, the best database or or the technology. But I knew the mind of the user, and that was more important than than it seemed, um, than almost any other type of information actually also had a conversation with Teresa Putkey. She, I, I interview lots of people for podcasts so, so these kind of just build up and I have this archive of people and I'm thinking, yeah, I remember talking with her. Well she had transitioned not just uh, into kind of a usability person who recommends, but actually the, the usability person who designs. And I asked her how she did it. She said, well, uh, basically, project team would show her these interfaces that were really bad and she you know so bad where she thought how could you even think to design this And, and she, but she wouldn't say it like that. she said, you know this is, this, is, this is okay, but if you want to do it well, this is how you can do it And eventually the opportunity came up where they had a new project and they didn't have a usability person and she said, well you know I will do it. I, I'm interested in this and they, they slotted her for the role. they, they slated her into that role. So you can make this transition. But I began to wear another hat as well. Uh, <clears throat> I noticed that as I would go through documentation and start, start to review the accuracy of the documentation against all my help files, my 250 topics, or however many were in there, that it was an incredibly thorough way to go through, thorough way to go through the application. And I started to find lots of bugs that the QA team, the quality assurance team, had missed. And the more bugs I found, uh, I would forward them in an email to the QA people, and after a while they got tired of logging them, and they said, look, Tom, we're going to set you up in our bug tracking system, which was called JIRA, it is called JIRA, and you just log the bugs you find in JIRA in there. So I said, okay, you know, I didn't really think it was my role to log bugs, because a, I had to learn that whole system, and B, we had a whole QA team, and what was wrong with my emails that I was forwarding to them? But I said, as a convenience, I will do it. And so I started to log the bugs in JIRA directly, and uh, soon found that there's there's really quite a pleasurable feeling logging a bug. Uh, <laughs> finding it and knowing that it's going to cause pain to the developers, <laughs> was, it's kind of sadistic. but. One day I, I actually you know, I had a goal, I said I'm going to log 25 bugs and I found them and I you know, stayed late to do it. And I noticed that, that it caught it got the attention of the developers, first of all, because they were, they were going to have to fix all these bugs, right? But it also got the, the attention of the project manager and the interaction designer because all these people had to come and evaluate these bugs and try to determine, um, you know, do we fix these and, and we want Tom to kind of explain it. And, and so, again, I was in these meetings, and rather than being somebody who was quiet, off, the, off to the side, taking notes, I was the one explaining, look, this is a problem on this screen. This doesn't work and so forth. This, uh, this isn't working either. And it wasn't just interface text, which they'd also uh, said that I owned, even though they really didn't mean it. Uh, but, but it was actual functionality. And one screen in particular had so many bugs against it that I logged and made such a big deal about how poor it was. Um, that they finally said, look, why don't you redesign that page? I said, OK. And I did. And I worked with QA and, and, and a designer, and we, or a developer, and we brainstormed and so forth, and, and we redid the page. And I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I, I can't believe I hadn't been in Jira earlier, because it was this passageway into an application in order to influence change. It was really where all these people met and made decisions. It's where we stored bugs and user stories and enhancement requests and everything. And by being a part of that, I was in a part of the project team that was uh, kind of key holders in deciding how how these things should go. An interesting thing also happened. Um, I was using Jing to take screenshots of the bugs and putting little captions and caption bubbles. And I'd even used Jing to do the little quick videos. It's a, a nice little software tool. And the QA people apparently hadn't progressed that far. They were still stuck in text mode. So uh, as we reviewed these bugs, you know the ones from QA were just written in text and were very boring to read. And then you'd read Tom's and it's like, oh, it's a picture. Oh, we see there's an arrow, and they loved it. So QA actually started to do some screenshots, and developers even joked that if it doesn't have a screenshot, we're not going to review it. And so <laughs> I had I had uh, kind of rubbed off an influence there that I'd brought over from my documentation role. Um, one of, my, one of my mentors in the Suncoast chapter is Mark Hannigan, he's a former SDC president. And he's always championing, championing championing, going beyond the technical writer role. In fact, he, he doesn't really even classify himself as a technical writer, he's more like a project manager who does the job of the business analyst and the job of the, the writer as well, uh, he does it all. And he was kind of an inspiration, I interviewed him once for a podcast and he said, It's really up to the technical communicator to market him or herself to other individuals, to the project managers, the appropriate departments, saying, hey, wait a minute, why do we have this separate entity of a business analyst and a technical communicator? I can help you with both, and we can provide deliverables that are faster, better, cheaper, and here's why. Then you go on to explain to them what you can bring to the table. But it's really up to us to recognize this opportunity and to posture ourselves. So I, I felt like I was really stretching in a lot of different directions and doing some of what Mark had said in presenting the fact that I could do more than simply write. I could do these other roles. I could, I could do QAs. Well, in fact, QAs, I thought they would get jealous and say, you know, stop hogging the spotlight of our, our JIRA system, you're not really a QA tester. But in fact, they loved it. They, they, they said, you should, you'd make a great QA tester, Tom, and I was like, oh, really? You know, So there wasn't any kind of threat that I perceived. Um, I started to play another role, too, and here this is not really a role of triumph, and this is where kind of the story gets more interesting as well. But we have these community projects where people from the community would volunteer their time and effort to create software, kind of like, you know, you have an Amish community with people who get together and raise a barn, well, we could do the same sort of thing but with software. And people from all over, people who are developers, people who are interaction designers, would just volunteer their time. And since I was one of the technical writers, um, who was a full-time employee, they said, Tom, we want you to kind of, you along with your colleagues, manage these technical writers who are volunteering. So now this new hat was sort of like a wiki manager. And I was somewhat new to to wikis, and I I threw my head into MediaWiki, which is what we're using. And branded a skin and nearly killed me trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, but I got it to look exactly like our homepage and so forth. And um, actually, I really like to do that kind of stuff, so it was fun. But but then we we started to recruit people, and I'd put out little messages saying, "Hey, this is a great opportunity. You know, this is a hot writing project. You'll build your portfolio, things like that." And we got a couple people. Um, and I I really have to kind of walk people through it and say, "Look." Uh, here's access. Here's how you start. This is what we want. These are the topics and so forth. And then they kind of disappeared. And, and so we we got one guy who who actually did write some topics. And then later I went in and renovated everything. And then he disappeared. And and um, I realized about this time that I was spending more time handholding people uh, into this, and and also that it it just wasn't working. Uh, there I had. Vastly underestimated the time that it takes to manage other people especially remote people who are volunteers and, and so forth so the, my my attempt to be a wiki manager actually kind of failed and uh, Let me hope So at and, and this point I started to feel really busy as well uh, the, This the fact that I wasn't a very good wiki manager uh, just kind of what was the, the starting point. And I started to see that I had spread myself way too thin. Uh, not only was I trying to you know corral people and, and direct them in, into what they could do, which they weren't doing, I was also logging bugs. I was also uh, answering phone calls. I was also um, recording video scripts and writing the help, and also you know participating in prototype review. and realized that, uh, and my help was actually slipping. The help kind of was really getting neglected with all these other roles. And in fact, one of the things that escalated this whole crisis of time is that one of the, the users put me on speed dial, I felt. And, and every time she had a problem, she had called me. And, and it was starting to drive me crazy. And I thought, wow, we're expanding our user base. If, if three or four more people do this, I'm not going to be able to get anything done. And um, <clears throat> So I started to think, uh, you know, should, should a technical writer move into all of these other roles and start to do more than just focus on technical documentation? I thought back to a couple conversations. Uh, one conversation I had with a with a QA developer as we, we carpooled to work for quite a few months, we had this conversation at least six or seven times. But I would complain that it was ridiculous for an organization of 600 IT professionals to have only four technical writers. And I said, there's just not enough of us to go around. And he would say, well, and we talked about these other roles that I'd play, and he'd he'd say, well, why, if you feel that tech writers are so scarce, why then do do you bother to play these other roles outside of tech comm, making yourself even scarcer? You know, don't we already have people slated for these roles? We already have an interaction designer. They're responsible for the design. We already have a QA team. They're responsible to log bugs. You don't need to expend yourself doing all these other roles, uh, especially when you're needed elsewhere. He even suggested that I, I just jump from project to project, documenting 80% of the tasks and moving on, because that's how I could best you know, provide help materials for all this stuff. And you know, I thought about that, and I thought he, he might have a point. And I talked to my, my colleague, uh, Paul Pearson, doc guy in Flare Forms. I said, Paul, what do you think about playing these other roles? Is it good or is it bad? And he explained that you know, to a certain extent, if you put yourself in a role of which you're not a professional, and which you're not really putting in that time to keep up with the latest trends, best practices, and methodologies in that field, then to some extent you're doing a disservice because you're, you're acting in a domain that you're really unfamiliar with. And so you could, you know, you could be doing things that aren't really the best way to do it because you just haven't, you don't have enough time to become a professional in that field. I thought, you know, my friend Doc Guy, he has a point as well. And uh, so, this troubled me for a while. I thought, well, you know, I I had come so far from just being this little peon writer to somebody who was actually like a full-fledged project member of a team who had a voice and an influence. And I didn't want to give that up because I felt that was valuable. That had also kind of given me a satisfaction in the career. I could show up to work, could sit in a cube, and not feel like I was at the very bottom rung of everything. There's this idea of Uh, cross-pollination. In biology, it refers to, and I'm not a biologist by any means, so this is my simplified understanding of it, but when you have uh, basically a species of one flower that's then mixed with another flower. So the bee carries pollen from one flower to a different one that's not the same species that it was supposed to pollinate, and so you get like a hybrid flower. And in the the intellectual sense, there's also an idea of intellectual cross-pollination. When you have people of different backgrounds, different perspectives, different ideas, different mindsets together, then they kind of come up with more innovative solutions. You're not always um, going down that same path of somebody who always sees something the same way. And as a technical writer, uh, playing these other roles, I could really see that this cross-pollination idea had some merits. Because as I played the customer support role, for example, uh, that role then helped me better imagine personas when I was writing documentation. Um, Or, or, If not explicitly writing down personas, I had real people in my mind as I was writing. would this frazzled secretary really understand what I'm saying? Uh, as I created videos you know, and worked on this conversational voice that, that I'd written about and so forth, um, that also carried into the help because then I, I started to look at my help and measure it and say, wow, this is not conversational at all. I could not use this as a script. Why am I even writing this? I'm writing this to humans. Um, My involvement in in the JIRA and the bug logging and the way I presented the information in a really simplified way helped me to learn to speak the language of developers. Um, And I had kind of, as I mentioned earlier, the the QA team had learned from me in using Jing to show screenshots of of the different sort of bugs rather than just describing them in text. Um, The fact that I was in meetings and that I was not just a silent participant, but somebody who was vocal, helped me also to be a better wiki manager because I wasn't shy at all about calling people or reaching out to them and just kind of giving them guidance and direction. Uh, It it came more natural because that was my natural way of being. Um, So essentially, I don't think that all these ancillary activities that we do really detract from our ability to be writers. I think that they enhance it in some way. It may not always be clear, and I definitely think there's a point where if you're playing too many roles, you do spread yourself thin, but at the same time, you know, as you're spreading yourself thin, you're also uh, aggregating other information. You're able to see things from other perspectives that that you don't get if you are just always working in sort of a tunnel vision documentation mindset. Now, um, I actually had a, a conversation with Mike Hamilton a while ago on Flare Six. It was a podcast that I did with him, and I learned that Mike actually was a physicist before he became his. He's what he does is he's like this vice. Uh, I don't even know what his role is VP of Product Management at MadCap or something. But before he got into that role, he was a physicist at a, at a laboratory, and you know I was asking him how many hats he wears at his current company. And he said, pretty much any hat that's not being worn by somebody else the day we need something to happen. And I think it's true. I mean, he's very visible in every aspect of that company. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that, I think a lot of times we put on, we, we have this mindset that, that we're technical writers. And we forget that some at some point in our lives, we decided to actually put on a hat of technical writing and decide to play this role ourselves. But then we forget that we can play these other roles just as well. Uh, but, but really, we, we aren't limited to just this set of writing tasks and topics. It's a role in as, as much as any other role is a role. Um, coming back to this post on the raw, unvarnished truth, this is that really disgruntled post. Uh, somebody actually left a comment last week that I think was very telling. Uh, I don't know how people are finding this, if they're searching for tech writing sucks or something. I don't know what they're, what they're, how they're finding it, but this, this person said last week, I have been a technical writer for over 22 years. During the 1990s, at the time of the dot-com bubble, the field was exciting and challenging. Now with the bust, with the bust technical writers often do nothing more than edit dreary procedures. I have found that working for small or medium-sized companies is much more exciting than working at a large corporation." And I. she goes on, she is still dissatisfied, but this sentence in particular really struck me. Why is it that she would be more happy and excited working in these small or medium-sized companies? And I think clearly it's because in small companies you wear lots of different hats, you wear lots of roles. One day you're interacting with, one day you are marketing, the next day you're interacting with the CEO, or you're doing the website, I mean, you, you do lots of different things. You're not just pigeonholed into one very narrow writing task. So now, I actually didn't even want to talk about roles today. I wanted to talk more about something called, some, uh, I wanted to talk more about story. Uh, but I didn't want to talk about story directly. So that's why I have this, this I tried to tell a story of all the roles. And if you look at my slides, I, I tried to label them. Uh, as different story components. First you have kind of this setting up, or this this yearning from a character, and there's these conflicts, these catalysts that produce change. There's eventually a turning point, and then a a wrapping up and a resolution. And I guess I'm partly interested in story because my background is in creative writing. It's an MFA, although nonfiction rather than fiction. And so I've always kind of felt like there's something about story that speaks to me. But really, I've, I've come to realize that, that story is, is this magic structure that makes everything work. And it doesn't just apply to writing. It applies to whatever role you're in. Um, in fact, I'm reading a book right now by Whitney Quisenberry called Storytelling, the user Experience, or Storytelling for the User Experience. It's actually not yet published. She sent it to me. Um, so I previewed, I guess. But she's talking about the role of stories in user design. And obviously, that comes into play really obviously with personas and so forth. But it goes beyond that. Uh, I mean, as you're designing interfaces, designers also have this concept of story. You know, you're getting inside your user's head, you're thinking about the problem areas, and you're designing solutions through an interface. Um, So whatever role we play, you know, ultimately, I think if you're a tech writer of some kind, the written text is really what what you're going to be measured on responsible for it's your flagship product and so forth you know however many bugs you log however many good design recommendations you give it still comes back to oh let's look at the online help the manual and we'll evaluate tom based on this um, at least the, in my mind that's how the ultimate kind of decision comes is you know what did you produce and so ultimately we we, we have this duty to, to do the written word, but how do you make it so that you're, you're more than just that college-educated person who can write good enough to pass it off as a skill anybody can do? And I think it's through story. Um, really is uh, what, what makes things work. Um, one of my favorite persons, Ira Glass, is host of This American Life. It's the most fascinating podcast ever. It's all these stories. uh, that that they gather and they present and and it's captivating because of the story. And This is quoted from Whitney's book. He says, until you hear a story and you can understand that experience, you don't know what you're talking about. There has to be a person's story that you hear, where finally you get a picture in your head of what it would be like to be that person. Until that moment you know nothing and you deal with the information you're given in a flawed way. And, oh I've got an email from Adobe. I think that, that story could be kind of our contribution that we give when we cross-pollinate into these other roles that we play. When you log a bug in JIRA, or, or whatever bug tracking system you use, if you bring with you this mindset of the story and try to ask yourself, well, what's the user trying to do? What problem, are, there? what conflict are they running up against? It will better inform you in, in the role that you play there. If you're sitting in a design meeting, and you bring with you this paradigm of the story, rather than just, oh, we've got this tab, and this tab, and this tab, and this function. You know, but really, look at it in context of what are people trying to do? You know, what's, what problems are they having? Um, what kinds of, what are they really trying to solve here? That's really the story. I mean, a story, a good story has change in the protagonist and so forth. But really, a story is just about some kind of, somebody has a motivation to do, to do something. And They run up against a conflict that prevents them from doing it, and then they find a resolution, right? And and having that kind of can work as a guiding principle in in almost every role that we play. And I believe that is yes, that is my end. So thank you. Now you can ask questions. Um, we we have about ten minutes. Oh, I have about fifteen minutes. So I know this is kind of a different setting, but. Um, I'd like to open it up for questions. If you have questions, we want to discuss anything. We'd love to, to go in that direction.